Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code GLOW. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase Today. Visit Douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is Douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Today's episode is brought to you by Backblaze, who provide unlimited backup for your files, external physical drives included, mobile apps for on-the-go access, everything you need. Seriously, back your stuff up. Try it out for free now at Backblaze.com slash CanadaLand. So we know some stuff, stuff about the Canadian media that we have not told you about. A lot of stuff, actually. Some of it, we don't know for sure. We don't know 100% that it's true. Maybe it's just rumors. Maybe it's like half true. We're still looking at that stuff. That stuff is going to take some time. Then there's this other stuff, stuff that we know is true, but which we're never going to tell you because frankly, it's none of your business. This is the like, who's sleeping with who kind of stuff. But then, then there's this other stuff, 
stuff that we do know is true, and stuff that is your business. Matters of legitimate public interest, to get serious about it. But this is stuff that we have not told you. We've been sitting on this stuff. It's in our files, unreported, and it bugs me. Because, like, what are we even doing here if we're not telling you this stuff? Okay, so today I'm going to do two things. First, I'm going to talk to our news editor, Jonathan Goldsby, about why we haven't told you this stuff. Why we haven't run it on the website through our news service. And then, then I'm just going to tell you this stuff. I'm just going to dump it. I'm going to tell you what really happened at the Globe and Mail before and after the whole Leah McLaren breastfeeding column fiasco. And I'm going to tell you what really happened at McGill University with the whole Andrew Potter affair, the former newspaper editor who wrote that column from McLean's magazine about Quebec that ended up resulting in his departure, what actually went down between him and the university and the media and the prime minister's office. All of that stuff in a minute. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Tamim Mansour, Jeremy Terren, Vivian Hingsberg, John Santos, Deanne Mercier, Jordan Smith, and Stacey O'Malley. Stacey, why did you decide to be awesome? I support Canada Land because Canada Land curates the stories that are important to hear but that you might have missed on mainstream media using a critical perspective that gets to the core of what's really going on. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away, but often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. And this episode is brought to you by a new sponsor, 
Backblaze. What is Backblaze? It is unlimited cloud backup for your Mac and PCs. I was very glad to take on Backblaze as a sponsor because it kind of kicked my ass in gear to do something that I really should have been doing anyhow, which is backing up my stuff between work and home, having small kids at home, videos of them at ages where they don't even talk like that anymore. Stuff that if it's just irreplaceable and always in the back of my head, like back it up, back it up. I just trying to figure out the proper way to back it up a foolproof way. Well, that's what Backblaze is. Access all your data anywhere in the world at any time on your web or on your phone. And you can restore just one file or everything. It's up to you. This is a cool feature. If you have a complete system failure, you can just get them to send you a hard drive with all of your stuff, like a physical hard drive. They will overnight it to you via FedEx. And then you send them back the drive for a refund on the drive. You get your files back that way if that's the way you want it back. This is not instead of a syncing or sharing cloud service. This is a compliment because this way everything is backed up. Over 23 billion files have been restored. So like they're not just a backup service. They are a file restoring service. People end up needing this. Backblaze is gimmick-free, no additional charges or fees. Guys, why wait and let one more day of risk go by? Back up your files. You can try it out for free to see if this is the backup service for you, but either way, back up your files. Go to backblaze.com slash CanadaLand. That way they'll know that we sent you, and you can get a 15-day free trial. Backblaze.com slash CanadaLand. Be smart. Seriously, give it a try. Back up your files. Hey, Jonathan. Hello. You have not been on the show as, as a Canada Land employee? No, no, I have not. I've been with Canada Land since January 30th. My last time in the studio in front of a microphone was oh, uh, March or April, I believe, of 2014 with Robin Doolittle discussing whether or not what I smelled at City Hall on a given night was crack cocaine. It smelled like burning rubber. Some people describe crack cocaine as smelling like burning rubber, whether Rob Ford was in fact in his office doing crack cocaine. And he was in his office, but whether he was doing crack there... We don't know, and frankly, it doesn't matter anymore. You have an admirable and uh, expansive memory for detail. Yes. Glad to have you back. I'm glad to be back. As a team member, we're here today to talk about, or like really like I'm going to tell some stories today that you dedicated no small amount of time to trying to tell. Like, like I'm going to just basically give what we have on a number of stories that you have tried to report, that you've done numerous interviews on, that mm-hmm. you've worked with other people here on. Why am I doing this? Why are these stories coming out here on the podcast and not on the website where we post news stories? One of Gawker's many slogans over the years was, today's gossip is tomorrow's news. And I certainly firmly believe that, that things that are whispered about or talked about in back channels one day, eventually you get turned into report, often get turned into reportable, thoroughly sourced stories that people can reasonably rely on and trust. And I strongly believe that Canada Land in its mission, one of the one of the things we have to do is, and one of the, the core element of our mission is that we have to be, we have to aim to be better than the places we call out and better than the places we criticize. And that means holding ourselves to a higher standard of reportability. Okay. But. Hold on. There's also this liminal space. Liminal space. Liminal space. So you've created a dichotomy here. There's higher. There's better. So there's worse. There's lower. And gossip is at the lower. Is this gossip? 
Is this because I, 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 I think of gossip as like a blind item or something that I don't know if it's true or not. Like people are saying that this is true. I, I am not here today to talk about things like we know that this stuff is true today. Yeah, no, I'm saying there's this limit. There is this liminal space between pure gossip and reported news and very worthwhile things exist in that space. Sometimes, sadly, things are never able to be drawn out of that space, never been able to get to a place where you feel comfortable putting it together in sentences on a website or in a newspaper with your name attached because you are therefore guaranteeing that every single thing there is solid. And you are also explaining, this is how, you know, you're citing your sources. This is how I know this. This is how I know this. This is how I know this. Because in the news business, as in many businesses, things come to you all the time that no one wants really attributed to them but you, when you start to hear the same thing or versions of the same thing enough times from different people, you may not be able to nail down something, but you can kind of draw some reasonable conclusions about, okay, there is an overwhelming likelihood that this specific thing is true. This is interesting. I think you just hit on it is like what distinguishes what I'm happy to do mm -hmm. on Canada Land, the podcast, from what you're comfortable publishing on Canada Land, the website, which has to do with a standard of a lot of journalism, which is not just that you know that it's true, but that you can show how mm. you know that it's true. I absolutely agree. Canada Land should aspire to be all the things that the media that we criticize sometimes fall short of. But the, the foundational attribute that I... I wanted Canada Land mm -hmm. to provide was we will break the stories that those guys are afraid to break. We don't sit on. I mean, I always bristled at this idea that what makes a journalist really high quality is that they don't report stories. That's you're such a high quality journalist that you're sitting on tons of information. Well, what good are you? And so Canada Land in large part was a project to like, well, mm -hmm. no, uh, a, a journalist who keeps it to himself isn't much of a journalist. This is sort of our tension, man. But it's a good I think it's a good tension. I think it's a productive tension. And I think frankly, if you were on the more cautious side of things, I would probably be pulling you the other way. Yes. I think, at least from my perspective of from what Candleland had been and what Candleland is, this was sort of the force or the this was this is so I think something that needed to be brought in so that there could be sort of a complementary force to so that your enthusiasm and eagerness could also be countered by someone saying, are you, are you sure about that? Yeah. Do we know that 100%? Is this the right word for this? Or maybe there is another way to phrase this. And in a case like this, perhaps I have been excessively cautious, but I do think that at least in the short, ter short to medium term, that's what Candleland needs. And I think it genuinely think it benefits from having this complementary relationship between us where you're ear to get ear to get things out and I'm a little more like uh may, maybe well this is like when, when we first had a drink to talk about you maybe coming to work mm -hmm. here your big question was will I ever have to publish something that I'm not ready to publish mm -hmm. and to that kind of classic editor publisher relationship mm -hmm. I I promised you no I will never force mm -hmm. your hand in that way and for the most part I think that it, it I actually, think it's worked out so far absolutely I, and we needed it we reached a point where to kind of like raise the standards and increase just sort of the journalistic rigor of what we put out there because what you want I mean look you want the story to be true that's the first thing and and there's no argument for me I want everything I put on this podcast to be true but there's another thing which is that because you show your work because you have what makes it reportable on I think all of the stories that I'm going to talk about today uh, mm -hmm. with you are stories that if we had documentation oh yeah or 
on the record sources, yes. we would have released his new stories. Oh, goodness, for, for sure. And I think, but I think there's something to be said about building up the credibility and goodwill as a news organization. So you can get to the point where if you really must, you can run something that isn't 100% openly sourced or 100% explicitly sourced and trust that readers will know that you know what you're doing and you know what you're talking about. Yeah, I I, 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 I could see what you're doing. You don't want to close the door on oh, goodness, no, on reporting. No. I think you have actually reported uh, at least one story that was based on confidential, not anonymous, but confidential sources, but a, a number of them. Yeah. But those are the trickier stories because, you know, like we always make mistakes. There's always, you know, or uh, there's often going to be an inaccuracy amongst everything else that, that mm. is true. What you want to be in is a position where if some, you know, it's always shoot the messenger. Whenever you publish something, it's usually a story that somebody doesn't want to have out there. And the first thing they'll come at is, okay, well, this story is filled with errors if they find one error. But if you have quotes from actual people, exactly, and if you have pictures of documents, then at a certain point, their quarrel isn't with you, the fake news journalist. It's with the truth itself. It's with that quote. It's with the person who, who said that quote, or it's with the document. So unless they're actually disputing whether it's, 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 an, it's a legitimate document or not, you can quickly, the story holds up. You exactly. You and you can show this is, why, this is why we're saying a thing. And Candleland had had an unfortunate record of there being places where a number of excellent stories that ended up getting unfortunately and disproportionately undermined because there was like one detail or one word off. And as you said, you know, people who don't like a story are going to poke holes in it no matter no matter what. But you know what, Jonathan, we have exactly the record that like, you know, given what we do, given the fact that we are scrutinizing the rest of the media and at times embarrassing them. The fact that we get hyper-examined and scrutinized is like I don't whine about that. That's that's okay. It's okay for people to hyper-examine us and scrutinize, and that's and that's why I think it's it's been a, a successful partnership so far. Is that you're basically like okay, scrutinize us, have at it. Mm-hmm. So for every other story, we've been able to find a path, and usually it's like okay, if you feel the story needs some more time, let's give it more time. These are stories where we've reached an impasse in in, in our respective different methods of doing it. Okay, so that's how we've worked, and it's worked out. For the most part, we, we, we've yeah. always found a way to convey the information that we have. And sometimes it just takes a bit more time. Mm-hmm. And I think the stories are better for it. These stories are the few stories where we, we couldn't find a way. We couldn't find a way. And it doesn't look like with more time we're going to we're going to get there. And yet we they, they have passed a certain threshold. They're things that we know to be true. Mm-hmm. So we're going to put them on the podcast instead of the news site. The responsibility for the following content rests on my shoulders, not Jonathan Goldsby's. Thank you. Blame Canada, land the podcast, not the impeccable site of highest standards and rigor. Let's begin. Jonathan, Canada has moved on from Leah McLaren's breastfeeding, and it's something that the national discourse has not been concerned with in some time. And yet it is something that comes up between you and I, like, uh, I don't know. Not the fact of it, just the circumstances around the publishing of a column about it. We know more than we have said about this. And just about every week or three, I say, Jonathan, when are we running our follow-up story? Mm -hmm. And I'm of the opinion that it's not at a stage or, well, probably will never be at a stage now where it is reportable. So uh, let me start by recapping what actually happened. And I'm going to see, let me put myself to the test. How quickly can I tell you what this ridiculous story is all about? It all involves a Leah McLaren column that was like online for like, what, a matter of hours? 
something like that. Okay. So Leah McLaren has this column where she talks about years ago, she was at a party. She was drunk. She was sexting some guy trying to hook up with him. It didn't go well. She went up to the co-check room. There's a little baby in a, in a uh, car seat sleeping. She finds herself tipsy, picks up the baby from the car seat, cradles him in her arms. Baby's making sucking noises. It gets very sexual in her description. She knows he wants it. She's her fingers in his mouth. She's thinking about it. She's actually about to undo her blouse, even though she's not lactating. She's 25 years old. She's just curious. It's all really unwholesome. The baby's dad disturbs the scene before anything else can happen and takes the baby away. Who is the baby's dad? Michael Chong. Michael Chong, who just uh, has been on Canada land. Conservative MP Michael Chong. Former leadership candidate, which was the news hook at the time. That's right. He was running for leadership of the Conservative Party of Canada at the time. That was the column that went up for a matter of hours. And it was a problematic column before you even get to, there's just so much that was wrong with it. But just from a purely factual basis, if you bothered to run the math on when Michael Chong had a baby who was breastfeeding, and when Leah McLaren was 25, you would see that those dates don't don't match up at all. No. Maybe when Leah was like 30-something, mm-hmm. it, it would have been possible. So the story obviously like didn't happen either at all or at least the way that she said it happened. And yet here's this column with like vague insinuations beyond the fact that there's factual problems with it. Is she describing an attempted act of like, you know, Something. child abuse, sexual? I don't know what it is. And what is the larger lesson of this? I mean, it was a very... It was peak Leah. It was actually a very entertaining column to read. There was like a very strained attempt to give this wider relevance about what this says about the politics of breastfeeding <laughs> at the end. I think Leah McLaren just wanted to talk about this because people were talking about Michael Chong and somehow she had but a hey, way I of- I got a Michael Chong story. I got a Michael Chong story. It involves me in some vaguely sexual way and uh, that's a Leah McLaren column. Have I failed to tell this in the most efficient and, and short way? I think I have. Anyhow, it goes up for a few hours. It disappears. The intrepid reporter Ishmael Darrow from BuzzFeed from BuzzFeed finds tweet evidence of the Globe Mail publishing this story. Somebody else, I think, finds an archived copy of it so all can read it. And it makes the rounds and everybody uh, is sort of gaping at this at this blunder. And journalists start picking apart the timeline. Uh, I think Mm -hmm. Sean Craig had a hand in that. And it was just sort of an insider thing until it burst outside of the media bubble when the Toronto Star actually reported on it. And it was a weird story for the Toronto Mm -hmm. Star because the Toronto Star doesn't usually run stories that have no reporter attributed to them, that have no byline. It was attributed to Toronto Star staff. And this all is occurring under an atmosphere of silence from the Globe and Mail. We're asking the Globe and Mail questions. Everyone's asking the Globe and Mail questions. How did this column get published? What's the deal here? Why did you unpublish it? American outlets are asking the questions. Yeah. Right? But, you know. That's what the Globe and Mail does. Globe and Mail went into their cave and they weren't answering anything. And then, lo and behold, there's this Toronto Star story. Globe and Mail suspends columnist Leah McLaren after breastfeeding controversy. So there's a fall guy here and it's Leah. The column we are told by the Toronto Star was accidentally posted online by editors before it was finished, according to an anonymous source. A source has told the star. This this, this story seems to be based on one source. Mm -hmm. There is widespread speculation that the source is Leah herself. And the star story is later updated to clarify that the suspension is not indefinite as was originally implied, but rather for one one week. week. And she's a contract. She's a freelancer who writes a weekly column. So essentially it means she 
which you know it's still it's still a punishment. You miss out on that one week's column to say what you want to say and whatever. Money. It's more of a symbolic. Yeah. It's yes. you are at fault. You know somebody's somebody's left holding the bag. Somebody is to blame. And in this case, it was Leah. It's and within the organization, it's kind of humiliating for this to be pinned on you. And uh, what's more, she was forbidden to comment on it. And I can't confirm whether or not that source was Leah. I don't know, but I know that the star. I don't know. I also don't know why it was uh, attributed to Toronto Star staff. Was the Toronto Star uneasy with this story because it's a kind of a one source story? I don't know. But as far as the public knows, this is a isn't Leah silly story, and this 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 be, I think is a, is is more of a scandal for Leah. And you know, her response is to do a little bit of PR damage control on her brand. She follows up with a very serious story. I can't forget the horror of my son's birth in the guardian where she talks about the traumatic ordeal of, I'm sure a very, a very truthful and forthright and much more serious minded story, but one that also gives a bit more gravitas back to Leah. And in the context of her as a mother, she's got some repairing to do. And I think that there's no accident that that story came on the heels of the first one. What do we have to tell you now, Jonathan? Cause everyone was expecting like, what is Sylvia Stead, the public editor going to mm-hmm. say about this? You know, what the hell happened here? And within the industry, it's like, well, columns don't get published by themselves. You know, mm-hmm. What happened? Like, why was Leah the fall guy? And what actually was going on? And we know a little bit about Mm. what happened. It's actually kind of a big deal. Within the Globe and Mail, Editor-in-Chief David Walmsley issues a memo to editorial staff where he basically puts the blame and the responsibility on everyone else, on the editorial staff. Very vague. He doesn't reference the column directly, but he does say, last month, a Globe and Mail column fell short of their best practices, fell short of their standards. And he, he puts the onus on everyone else. If your gut tells you the story is problematic, follow that instinct, flag the issue, even if you don't exactly know why you are concerned. Standards matter if journalism is to matter. Let's go back to putting our audience first. So here's management telling everybody, you know, like it's your job to make sure this doesn't happen again. And there's an inference that it was like somebody made, somebody should have said something, somebody should have done something. An implication. There's an implication there. That did not sit well with the Globe staff. And I'll tell you a little bit about why that didn't sit well with them. And then we'll talk about what they did about it. It didn't sit well with them because it wasn't entirely Leah's fault or even her editor's fault that this thing got published. And this is the part that I think is kind of surprising and shocking. The Globe and Mail didn't publish that article. Technically, no Globe and Mail employee hit the button that published that article online. Pagemasters published that article. Pagemasters. Who is Pagemasters, Jonathan? There was a 1994 Macaulay Culkin movie on the subject. Uh, I believe he got sucked into Treasure Island and several other stories. But Pagemasters, in this context, is the is a wholly owned subsidiary of the Canadian Press, based out of their building on King East, so not that far from where the Globe and Mail is located, which has teams responsible for copy editing, laying out and publishing uh, stories for the Toronto Star and Globe and Mail and quite likely some other clients who have contracted them. So Pagemasters was a way for the Globe and Mail to cut costs in 2010. They started this process. They got rid of a lot of their copy editors. They got a lot, rid of a lot of their page layout people. Mm-hmm. They got, you know, what they call like, you know, the back desk, the people who yeah. make sure that a story is not just, you know, free of grammatical errors, but these are the people who traditionally like make sure that the standards and, and the style guides and everything is up to code. And if they see something, you know, for David Walmsley's point about if you see something weird in a story, raise a concern, it would usually be your your back ed- your, your back desk editors who would do so. And generally speaking, page masters employs people who are younger with less experience, still, you know, very competent, but the key thing is 
you know, for, from the publication's perspective is they're paid a great deal less than the newsroom copy editors would have been paid. Now, if they can do the same job, then, hey, times are tough. You got to cut costs where you can. Uh, the thing is that it's gotten really hazy and shady what the procedures are for publishing. It's not just that they've taken off these you know, copy editing tasks. When it comes time to publish to the web, it's often PageMasters that makes that decision. And that was the case in this instance. Mm-hmm. Leah does have editors, but the section has been without an editor for months and months. The life section of the Globe and Mail has been without an editor. And editorial duties are kind of like a group of editors sit, sit down. And, and there was a discussion about this column. Leah files late, so there was less time mm-hmm. to flag it. And, you know... Perhaps take Michael Chong's name out of it. So it wasn't about a specific baby, but more a general abstract baby. Or just look at the timeline, you know? Yes. Or just ask those questions about like, okay, this is funny, but is anybody hurt by this? Or, mm-hmm. you know, what's the point of this? What are the implications? None of that happened. And it ends up like, like as stories do with PageMasters and they press publish. And PageMasters was also, to their credit, the party that pulled the column. It was, you know, PageMasters has digital and then they've got their newsprint. PageMasters print people were the ones to say, wait a second, we should lawyer this up and let's take it offline until we do. All of this happened outside of the Globe and Mail, and this is a source of a lot of anxiety and consternation amongst Globe and Mail. Like, you know, if you give somebody else the ability to press publish or to unpublish, which is actually like maybe even more of an extreme thing to do, as a publisher, that's a kind of a big deal. Mm-hmm. And it's been a flaw in their editorial process and procedure for, mm-hmm. for, for a long time. So there's like a lot of different people. Like, like, you know, it takes a village to fuck up and, you know, publish a column about trying to breastfeed Michael Chong's baby. I'll tell you, I know a little bit about actually what happened. Um, even what she said happened. It sort of happened. It didn't happen. She never actually took the baby. I know what happened in that room. She never actually even took the baby out of the infant car seat. She was just like in the room with this baby. And then like Michael Chong comes in and Leah goes, would it be okay if I were to breastfeed your baby? And he says, no, that's all that happened. Were you hiding under the coats on the bed, Jesse? I cannot reveal how I know this information, but that is actually what happened. And that, that's amazing that Leah could draw a column of so many years later and that it would be one that was so consequential for her. But our story is not over yet because we know more than this. So what happened Next, or at least shortly after at the Globe and Mail, was that its employees, its newsroom staff, became frustrated with management's response, became frustrated with letting Leah largely take the fall or take the blame for it, became frustrated that the publication was refusing any media request and wouldn't acknowledge it, became frustrated that they had a public editor who wasn't writing about it or addressing the situation in any outward or external way, and became frustrated that various issues of process and cost cutting that had taken place over the years had not really been addressed and led to a you know not entirely unforeseeable conclusion where this this thing happened it wasn't perhaps vetted thoroughly and it was the publishing of it and unpublishing of it was out of their hands so one senior columnist took it upon himself to draft a letter Simon Haupt. So the senior media writer at the paper takes it upon himself to draft a letter on behalf of the staff. Uh, the letter outlines these concerns. The The idea is to, as best they can, start a productive dialogue with management to explain the concerns, to not make it, to as best they can, not make it an adversarial thing, but rather like genuinely, we want to reach out and talk to you. Please address these things. Can you give people some idea as to the lengths that Simon Haupt went to, to make sure that nobody 
Canada Land got their hands on a copy of this letter, which is actually, if we had a copy of the letter, we would have run a story on it. My understanding is that the letter, all, you know, was initially emailed around, but pretty quickly people realized, okay, this is probably not something that multiple people should have copies of because then it could be forwarded on outside the Globe and Mail. And, you know, they correctly understood that that could potentially make the situation worse. It could become an adversarial thing, could become a matter of public shame. Whereas, as far as as far as I understand it, they legitimately wanted to create a dialogue. So I heard different versions where people or Simon would show it on their computer screen and ask, you know, do you, do you agree with this? Do you want to add your name to it? I heard that it was taken around on an iPad and shown people. And in the end, there were several dozen. Uh, we heard 72 yeah. Right. Uh, Globe and Mail people, including some senior, fairly senior and established people who put their name to this letter addressed to David Walmsley. I think that's a big deal when you've got 72 people, 72 journalists writing a letter to the editor in chief saying we are not happy with how you handle this. Oh, my goodness. I mean, like that that's it's yeah, I know it's fantastically fascinating. But I mean, the core issue about whether is that a news story in and of itself was. What were they pissed off about? Were they pissed off that, like, out of, like, uh, fealty to their colleague Leah, we don't want Leah to take the hit? And, like, Leah's not unionized there, so she's a no. con- convenient fall guy for this. So were they just sticking up for uh, Leah McLaren because they didn't think it was fair? Or was this more about, like, hey, it's broken here. Our procedures are broken, and you're putting it all on Leah, and then you're kind of putting it on us to prevent the next Leah. And what about you? What about the procedures here? Like, what was the gen- what was the thrust of this letter as you understand it? Well, that's the thing is we don't really know for sure because they were successful at keeping it out of our hands. I have not obtained a copy of it, nor have I seen a copy of You've it. You've had it described to you, though. I've had it described by different people in slightly different, not necessarily contradictory, but in slightly different ways to the extent that trying to come up with one accurate characterization of it and its of its contents that I would put in print made me uncomfortable. We also don't really know the outcome save that they were, they were at least satisfied enough with Walmsley's response and he, he did respond. He there did. were a series of meetings with that he held with different groups of people and initially there was at least some satisfaction gained from that, that as though there had been some progress beyond that, whether anything had changed at the Globe in the processes beyond additional scrutiny being placed on Leah's columns. That's a bit more of an open question, but we don't have many reasons to be hopeful. Jonathan, you know what we're doing right now? We are desensationalizing. It's no longer about breastfeeding and mm-hmm. illicit breastfeeding and uh, non-consensual breastfeeding. Like this is, we're making this about a dry story about the newspaper industry, but that's what it is. It's about Discord, mm-hmm. the Globe and Mail. It's about how uh, print publications are cutting costs and the, mm-hmm. and the effects that that's, that that's having. And it's, and it's also about accountability. We also know why Sylvia Stead never got out in front of this and wrote a column about like how the Globe handled this. Maybe no is a strong word, but my, as my as I understand it, uh, the reason she declined to write a column about it is because she was offering advice and to management on how to respond to the story and therefore felt it would have been a conflict of interest to weigh in. I think there are a number of things there we can take issue with. Oh, my God. I mean, it, that speaks to the, the basic question, and in the case of Sylvia Stead, problem of this post. Is the public editor there for the public, or are they there to help you do damage control as a crisis unfolds in the newsroom, in which case they serve the the, the organization and the journalists? In this case, if that is, in fact, the reason why she didn't even acknowledge the existence of this controversy, then she very firmly put her lot in with, I'm here to protect the globe at the expense of my ability to provide transparency to the public. 
and with the New York Times getting rid of their public editor, like I, I wonder what the future of that position is. I feel like the your this, your statement about Stovia Stead just now could perhaps have been uh, copied and pasted in from any number of previous episodes. Jonathan, let's talk about the Andrew Potter thing. Hmm. I haven't talked about that in a while. Yeah, it seemed like for uh, a week or two there, nobody talked about anything but this story. And then as these things tend to do, it uh, it burns white hot and quickly, and then it's done and on to the next thing. Well, not for Potter necessarily, but... No, not for the people involved in the story for whom it had life-changing implications, but for the rest of us, there always seems to be the next thing in the cycle. Mm-hmm. But we moved on without settling a couple of big issues and actually with not, without answering a couple of big questions. I think we can answer them today. But first, let me summarize for people who, who may not have caught it or don't remember exactly. This is what happened. Andrew Potter used to be the editor-in-chief of the Ottawa Citizen. He left that post to take a position at McGill as a professor and as the head of the McGill Institute for the Study of Canada. Very prestigious role in this institute. But Andrew Potter, like a lot of ex-journalists, can't quite seem to help himself from opining and punditing now and then. Even on subjects on which he knows very little. (laughs) Uh, There's one column that I think he wishes that he did not write, and that was this column he wrote in Maclean's, which had wide-reaching implications, including for this show when I... Stumbled into this debate myself and offended a lot of Quebecers uh, who were still mad about the column. But anyhow, the column was uh, a bad column. It was a shitty column. It was a lazy column. It was a bad column. It was a col- Actually, there was a good column buried within this bad column. But it was- As there a- often is. Yeah. There was something there, but he, he took these things. He took the fact that there was this snowstorm, which in his view, problematically- in his view, there was not a robust enough response between neighbors helping neighbors during this, the snowstorm. And he connected that to the results of this, uh, this study, this polling, which actually is very interesting, mm-hmm. uh, which, which showed that in a number of different metrics, questions that you ask different people in Canada, how well do you trust your neighbor? Do you give to charity? Quebec was performing incredibly poorly. Much has been written about what we can actually make of those results. But what Andrew Potter made of it is that Quebec is like really shitty. And he wrote a column about just how shitty Quebec is and how it's a low trust society. And and the snowstorm tells you everything you need to know about it. And, and it also just included weird things. That just... It was just a, a really puzzling column because because it was the sort of thing that you kind of read from the lazier columnist at the dailies who have to pump out a certain number of things a week where they'll take a number of different anecdotes or barely collect connected things, tie them together with a current news event, then try to draw some grand thesis from it, whether it holds together or not, well, at least they have something in the paper. It wasn't quite clear what what compelled him to to want to share this. Oh, it was clear to me, uh, a Anglo anger and, and uh, no, you know, that th- th- this was not, you're right. It was not a column that was like, oh, I've got a file that I'm going to feed the goat. This was, I've got something, I got a bag of chip on my shoulders about Montreal and about Quebec and I have an opportunity here to unload. And this type of column is crappy enough at the best of times but when you're, you know, using it to target a distinct sociocultural group with a very, you know, particular and proud identity, that's, that's bad. And doing so from McGill, the bastion of Anglo-Quebec, and, and from McLean's, similar brand. But Jonathan, bad takes happen. They happen to the best of us. Even I, I'm going to shock you here, even I have the occasional bad take. No. Yeah, it's true. Andrew Potter paid a dear price for his bad take. The response was swift, as it often is in Quebec when you offend Quebec. It was a shitstorm. You know, you had uh, various, I think the premier spoke out against the column on Twitter. I think the mayor might have said something. There were public declarations of disgust and anger, you know, and this is in a province where legislators feel completely okay decrying journalists and, and, and specific pieces of writing from the legislature. So it's not that new, but here you had everybody in an uproar about this. 
And Potter was almost immediately sorry that he'd written this thing and apologizing for it. He was on Facebook saying that he'd erred. It was an error in judgment and saying that he uh, he wanted to withdraw the column and pull it. McLean's doesn't unpublish material, but that was uh, what he said he wanted to do. And he indicated this elsewhere. He indicated this in an email that he sent to the directors of the Institute for the Study of Canada, saying he'd shown bad judgment and he apologizes for whatever damage he did to the credibility. We actually published, we, 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 we had a freelancer who... We had an excellent story from Dylan Robertson, who now works for the Winnipeg Free Press, which he had FOI'd, he'd done a free freedom of information request on McGill University because, you know, it's a public institution, you can do that. And he got a wonderful trove of hundreds of pages of somewhat redacted, but not, but still pretty great emails of correspondence from within the university of what was going on that week in terms of how they were scrambling to respond to the column and then subsequently how they were scrambling to respond to his sudden departure. But they only shed a sort of a limited amount of light on the question at the center, which is to say, was he pushed or did he jump? And that is the mystery that was never really answered. Uh, We were able to see through that trove of documents how an institute responds in crisis, but we did not gain any insight into this question of- some. What what did we learn? We learned that he wasn't uh, he didn't have resignation on his mind. Yeah, beforehand. Yeah, that wasn't that wasn't he was trying he wanted to do to know what he could do to make it right, and that didn't necessarily I guess didn't necessarily exclude resigning, but it it, it wasn't it wasn't an option he actively raised. Which really with his colleague. it really deepens this mystery because because why does this matter right? Like so here you have a guy who the thing comes out on a Monday afternoon it, it's a shitstorm he's really sorry but he wants to keep his job. Right. So to this question of did he jump or was he pushed, all early indications and what our reporting also told us is that he he really wanted to keep his job. Why does it matter whether he was pushed? It matters because if he was pushed by McGill out of his job because politicians were angry, then something happened that shouldn't have happened. And that's what Andrew Coyne pointed out on Twitter. He said, if McGill forced out Andrew Potter over a piece of social criticism because it upset some powerful people, we have a major scandal on our hands. Now, that major scandal never really broke out. And part of the reason why is that the PMO was quick to unequivocally Mm -hmm. deny that they had exerted any pressure. And in fact, Jerry Butts on Twitter was denying up and down that they had anything to do with this. And he responded to Coyne and uh, said... If you want to slyly spread a rumor, but don't want to be responsible for whether it's true, you start a tweet with if, suggesting that it was Coin spreading this rumor. There's no truth to this at all. Coin counters, well, where do you think people would have gotten the idea that the PMO contacted McGill? Where did people get this idea that the PMO was calling for Andrew Potter's head on a platter? And Jerry Butts himself and was wondering that same thing in an email to McGill. I mean, part of one of the best parts of this correspondence was him essentially contacting the principal of McGill, Susan Fortier, asking, you know, sort of saying, like, I want to make sure you know this is out there. This is this bizarre rumor. And, you know, implicitly saying, what the hell? Where are people getting that? Everybody thought that this had happened. Where did this rumor come from? Andrew Coyne wanted to know. Jerry Butts wanted to know where the rumor started from. He said publicly to Coyne, well, somebody was peddling this rumor. I haven't the foggiest idea. And he was complaining to, to Forte, you know, you should know that this rumor is out there. Who started this rumor? So we can answer that question too. We can answer the question, was he jumped or did he push? And we can answer the question, who started the rumor? First answer, he was pushed. He wanted to keep his job. In fact, he went into a meeting with Fortier with like all kinds of strategy about different ways that he could satisfy the public anger, apologize, somehow keep his job. 
He left that meeting with the knowledge that there was no way to keep his job. In that meeting, the principal of McGill, Suzanne Fortier, who won't answer our questions on the topic, called for his resignation. She told him that basically he had no choice. I feel like we need a sound effect there. (laughs) (laughs) He could resign or he would be explicitly fired and humiliated. This way, at least he got to keep his teaching position and uh, it wouldn't be quite so bad for him. Also, the second question was answered in that meeting. Where did the rumor start that the PMO was exerting pressure on McGill? I can tell you this. Andrew Potter left his meeting with Principal Suzanne Fortier with the impression that Fortier was under pressure from various governments for his resignation, that she had no choice. And he wasn't the only one. The board of directors, the board of directors was not happy with the situation. There were members of the board of directors who were satisfied with Potter's apology. They were uneasy with his resignation. They have the choice whether to accept it or whether to ask for clarification. There's a process that can happen. They were told by Principal Suzanne Fortier that various levels of government were directly pressuring her. And other McGill officials also confirmed to the board members that, and here's the list, the mayor of Montreal, two cabinet ministers, the premier of Quebec, and the prime minister's office were all asking McGill to fire Andrew Potter. Now, Jonathan, just because everybody was under the impression that the government at all levels was calling for this resignation, it doesn't mean that it actually happened. All that I can tell you for sure is that Suzanne Fortier told a bunch of people that she had been pressured to do so. And I can tell you that subsequently, there were members of the board of directors who felt manipulated. They were given the impression that this was a done deal in a way. That they didn't really have the option of whether to accept a resignation, that they had to accept the resignation. When in fact, there may have been an opportunity for some discussion of that. Yeah. We, We don't know whether or not this pressure did or did not exist, but yeah, we can confidently say this is why people think it did. The big takeaway here is, I think, some insight into how power actually works in Canada, maybe in general. You know, this idea that like Justin Trudeau gets on the phone and says, I don't like this column in McLean's, have this professor fired. Uh, that's not how it works. A lot of people were also drawing our attention to the fact that there's a financial relationship. There is a $200 million plus project. McGill is building the center and all three levels of government are involved. They are dependent on government for massive amounts of funding. So you can connect the dots and see why McGill would be swayable. It doesn't work like that. It's known that that relationship exists. Mm -hmm. And in Canada, these people all kind of know each other. In Montreal, power lives in like two neighborhoods. It lives in Outremont and Westmount. Like... There is a small political class. They go to the same parties. They talk to each other. And I don't think that it would even be necessary for those direct calls to happen. They may have happened. They may have happened through back channels. So there's deniability. Or maybe they didn't happen at all. I don't think that Jerry Butts would have denied it so emphatically if there was any chance of anybody proving otherwise. So I, I, I think it's entirely possible that the prime minister's office didn't make a peep. Mm-hmm. Except for what Jerry Butts said on Twitter, which was that he was displeased with the column. I've chided Jerry Butts before saying like, you know what? It's not really the position for the prime minister's right-hand man to be like acting as a media critic and decrying mm-hmm. journalists, you know, because you're not just talking as one person. You exert the power of the state. There are, you know, huge financial consequences to being on your bad side. But that tweet potentially enough in and of itself. That's it. That's pressure. The, the, the tweet is all you need. But, you know, uh, the ways in which these things get broken, telephoned up. I mean, if the question here is... Was the academic independence of McGill compromised by government? I think it's a clear yes. 
That is your Canada Land Show. I hope you enjoyed it. You can reach me by email at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read all the emails that you send me and I respond to you when I can. Follow us on Twitter at Canada Land. And listen, if you want to read the stories that do pass Jonathan's threshold and which we do report as news stories, either by Jonathan or through some very talented freelancers, the best way to make sure you get that stuff is to like us on Facebook. You go to our website and maybe we have something new up, maybe we don't. We only publish when we have something. Like us on Facebook to make sure that it enters your newsfeed. Our website is canadalandshow.com. Our crowdfunding site is patreon.com slash canadaland. This episode was produced by Russell Gregg. If you like what we do, please support us. Would it be okay if I were to breastfeed your baby?